Good morning. Doesn't sound like I am on, am I? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Good morning. Now, we're going to have a look, as you already worked out, uh, at the I am sayings of Jesus. There are too many for me to look at, so I'm not really going to look at each one. Um, but I have something to say right at the beginning, which um, is really important. It's this. Jesus was shocking. Jesus was a radical. Jesus caused opposition and division amongst those that he spoke to. And we find it really difficult. We have a problem, in fact, um, about trying to work out what's, what's really happening when we read the Bible and Jesus says the things he says. It's, it's a problem of context. And if you read John's Gospel, where all of these, uh, these sayings, these main sayings are, then you see they are right in the middle of Jewish festivals. And I don't know about you, but I don't know much about Jewish festivals, and certainly not in the first century, what it was like then. Trying to put yourself in the place of somebody else in another part of the world, in another century, well, it's really difficult. Let me just make you feel uncomfortable for a minute. If I started talking about Sophie Dodd, Dr. Delia Ford, Tim Reynolds, Neville Peacock, how many of you would feel comfortable would know what I'm talking about? Anybody? One, two, uh, or if I said Dot Cotton and Phil Mitchell, then a few more of you might get the get those names of people who come in this year, apparently, to EastEnders. Some people are still sitting there going, what? What's he talking about? It, you know, some people are comfortable with a context, with a situation, with the surrounding. Some people are not. Okay, let me try another one. Christopher Pike, Catherine Janeway, Aha, you know Catherine Jane, wait, right? Wolf, Odo, no? Hey, Spock, Spock, Kirk, yeah, okay, so again, you see, some people are really comfortable, they're, they're Trekkies, they understand Star Trek, and others are going, what? Star what? And so when I say to you, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it doesn't have the same impact it had in first century Palestine. So we just need to get closer, a little bit closer to what's happening in, um, in Jesus' context. I'll take you to the, the one I think is the most powerful, the most uh, gobsmacking as far as the people listening to Jesus were concerned. If you've got a Bible, it is helpful. Turn to John's Gospel but otherwise you can listen to the recording later and uh, pick up the references. I'm looking at John chapter 8. I'm going to have to move fairly briskly through some of this. Um, John chapter 8, there's, uh, there's several occurrences of things that are worth looking at, but I'm going to just turn you to chapter 8, verse 31, if I may. And Jesus is talking to the Jews who had believed him. 
And Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we go, oh yeah, that's lovely. We'll be set free. Yeah, Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I've heard that before, that's, that's really good. And you'd think that his listeners would go, oh great. But they don't. These are the Jews that have believed him. They say, hang on a minute, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Perhaps they should read their history. But they, uh, how can you say we will be set free? And then there's a discussion between Jesus and these, um, these Jewish folk. And right at the end of this passage, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus says this, really smack them round the head, saying, listen to this, verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a weird thing to say, if you think about it. If he wanted to say, I, I was back there a long, long, long time ago, you, you'd think he would have said, before Abraham was, well, I was there. He didn't. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. And the reaction he gets tells you something about it. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones? Because they thought, this is blasphemy. We're going to stone him because of blasphemy. It's not the only occasion that this happens. It dates back to when Moses was in the desert, actually he was on Mount Horeb, and those of you who have a, a, a memory that doesn't get eradicated by traumatic experiences will remember last time I was stood here, um, I was talking about Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and Elijah, and uh, Moses was on that mountain and encountered God in a burning bush, remember the incident, I'm sure, and God says, I want you to go and set my people free. Actually, he said, I've come to set my people free, now you go and do it. And so Moses says, uh, well, who, who are you then? That, what name shall I give when they ask me? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And this was the God title that he was to use. And was it gets complicated, but actually they are not allowed to say the name of God. It's so holy, so special. And so Jesus comes along and says, before Abraham was born, I am. It's the God title. I am. No wonder they picked up stones to stone him. He causes division amongst the people. And we find opposition. There are... um, There are usually seven I am's which are pointed to in John's Gospel. The bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the sheepfold, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. Um, You don't fit on the screen, so we just have to shove them around a bit. What are these things about? What are they about? Because although if you've been in church for some time, 
you'll understand the picture language, very powerful picture language Jesus is using, or some of what he's trying to get across. Imagine just talking to somebody who's never been in church, and you say, Jesus is the good shepherd. Did you know that? And they go, what? I mean, how many of you are shepherds? How many of you know a shepherd? Anybody? Do you know, I mean, do you know an actual shepherd with sheep? Yeah, two people. I know a shepherd. Well, now, in Jesus' time, when he was speaking to them, everyone would have known a shepherd. And there would have been several shepherds present, I expect. Although they would have stood on the edge of the crowd because they were a bit smelly, um, being with sheep all the time, you know. Um, Yeah, all right. I won't go into that. (laughs) Lanolin. Um, So it's it's a difficult picture for us today because we're not used to what they were used to. I want to suggest to you one or two things which these I am sayings are about. And the first thing is they are about life. Jesus said, John 10, 10, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, real life. He's talking life in the kingdom of God. That's what all of this series has been about. And it's about life which goes on into eternity. It's real life. It's lived in relationship with God. That's what he's talking about. And did you notice that all of these, well, you may not have noticed all of them, but uh, a lot of these I am sayings have the word life in them. For the sake of recording, I'll put the, uh, I'll put the references in. Bread of life, 635. Resurrection and life, 1125. Way, truth and the life, 14.6. Light of life, 8.12. And you, you can say, oh, you're cheating, it's light of the world. No, I'll read it to you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right? So it's life. Shepherd, hmm, chapter 10, um, verse 28, 27, say, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand if you read on my father who has given them to me is greater than all no one can snatch them out of my father's hand I and the father are one we had that song I didn't know we were going to have um, our God is a great big God and he holds us in his hand but you know um, that's where this comes from that comes from He says, I am the father of one. What happens? The Jews again picked up stones to stone him. Jesus said, hang on a minute, which miracle is it you're going to stone me for? And they said, it's not the miracles we're going to stone you for, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Don't believe anyone who says Jesus never said that he was God. It was absolutely plain to everybody at the time that he was claiming over and over and over again to be God. That's why they were going to stone him. I'll tell you the one that really gets me every time. 
I haven't put it on the, on the screen, but chapter 18, when Jesus is arrested, they go to the garden across the Kidron Valley, the olive grove. They went in there and Judas turns up. He knew where Jesus was going to be. And he had a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees who were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. They, were, they weren't brave enough to arrest him during the daytime. And uh, Jesus went out to meet them. So he's there by himself and he says, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And it says in this version and most versions, I am he, or I'm the one. Actually, the words he used were simply, I am. I am. It's so powerful. What happens is this. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is what happens when God appears somewhere, where God is revealed. They fell down. I think that's incredible. And um, it's another I am. Um, It's not on here. Um, Dave spent a long time, thank you Dave, with lots of uh, things from all over the Bible where God is saying, I am this, I am that. Okay, so it's about life. Uh, It's also about spiritual satisfaction and it's also about um, a reaction to Jesus. You see, they heard what he said and they, uh, they understood what he said but they didn't all follow him. The three reactions that you get today are the same reactions then. That some were interested. They wanted to know more. Some were apathetic. I think that's the curse of this nation is apathy towards Christian things. And some within that turned, turned away and just said, you know, not interested. You say, why are you not interested? <laughs> well, not interested. Actually, some of the followers of Jesus turned away because it was too much to swallow. His teaching was too, too rich. But the third group, they were saying, this is wrong, we're going to stop it. And today, we get that as well. There are those who, who say... This is wrong. We're going to stop this kind of Christian teaching, the militant atheism, for example, wants to stop um, real teaching about the real Jesus, not just militant uh, humanism, atheism, uh, militants in other religions too, um, who are trying to wipe out Christians. The question is, what do we make of Jesus? What is our reaction to Jesus? And I believe all of our conversations with others about our faith have to start and end with Jesus. We can talk about uh, what it means to us and the outworkings of it, and there are lots of things that it has in terms of implications for our lives, but we've got to look at Jesus Hmm. 
I want to look at um, John 14 and the way, the truth and the life, which is controversial. I had a, I had a haircut once. Uh, I had a haircut recently as well, but I mean, I had a haircut once in, in Somerset, where we came from before Weymouth. And um, there's a chap who, who was standing in for somebody else. It wasn't my usual barber. Um, sorry, you're not supposed to call him that. It's a uh, gentleman's uh, hair stylist. <laughs> um, my usual one uh, was quite a character. Uh, torn jeans, uh, piercings in places that I never knew people had places, and uh, was an expert on um, uh, skateboarding and all sorts of other things. But he was great. And he hardly ever spoke to me unless I wanted to have a conversation. The stand-in, you know, you get this very powerless, isn't it? And you're in the barbers. You have this cloak put on you and a thing put across here and you, and you stare at this awful picture on the wall <laughs> and, and you can't move. Um, and they have sharp things. <laughs> and I don't want to move in case I lose something. And this guy started talking about faith. And he said, well, that's their truth, and it's not my truth. Right? And I wanted to go, are you sure? Is that? But I thought, no, don't move. Um, very interesting conversation, which I won't bore you with, but I, I keep on encountering this. You know, it's maybe true for you, but not for me. And... I'll tell you what I found helpful, you may find it helpful too, is if someone effectively says there's no such thing as absolute truth, ask them, is that statement true? <laughs> is it absolutely true that there is no absolute truth? It could turn into a very interesting conversation. Um, Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The God title again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's a very definite way of speaking. It's not a possible way, a possible truth, a possible life. It is the way, the truth, the life. A lot of religions and, and faith beliefs will say, well, that's the way that you should follow. That's the truth or the way to truth. That's the way to live. Pointing somewhere else. Jesus points at himself and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And I'll tell you what, people who don't want to listen hate it. Now I don't want to get people's backs up, I don't want to make enemies, but I do want people to know what Jesus said. Because Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, if you can't share the truth with people because they say, oh, well, that's your truth, not mine, we've got a problem. And if we don't believe it ourselves, we've got another problem. We need to think really hard, is this what I believe? If not, we've got to do a lot of rethinking of our faith. Is Jesus really 
the way, truth and the life today. And people say, oh, that's, that's being exclusive, not inclusive. But I don't know how you can include all faiths, for a start. Some of them say Jesus died on the cross and some of them say he didn't. Some of them even say he didn't exist. Um, some say he was God and some don't. You can't have it both ways. You, know? you can't be that inclusive. God is very exclusive. There's a, there's a verse, oh, I'll put it on the screen, Deuteronomy 32, 39, which is usually translated, I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. And I looked it up, and I found it, that's a weak translation, would you believe? It actually is like this, in the original Hebrew. Got to ask Peter about that more than me. Um, <laughs> it actually says something like, I am, I am. No God with I am. That's it. I am, I am, and no God with I am. And Jesus is saying he's actually the I am. He is God that they've seen all the way through their scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. The thing my barber, sorry, whatever it was I called him, um, he didn't understand was that Christianity will stand up to scrutiny, scientific scrutiny, logical scrutiny. You can look at the evidence. It's not just some idea that people have. It's not just you know, shifting sand, things that, well, you know, we, we made this up, or somebody made it up, and we thought this is a good idea. There is evidence to support it. The major evidence, which we'll be looking at later on, is, is the resurrection, for the resurrection. Now, if there's evidence for the resurrection, you've really got to look hard at Christian claims. But I thought today we'd look at something else. And uh, it's to do with prophecy. Um, <clears throat> prophecies. Now, the number on the screen, uh, maths teachers amongst us and scientists will, uh, will appreciate, 1 times 10 to the 17... Uh, which is 100,000 million million, as a figure that's been worked out, is the probability, that number, 100,000 million million to one, is the probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies about the Messiah in 33 years. Now, these are mathematicians, highly eminent mathematicians, not all Christians, who were asked to work out What's the, what's the chance, what's the probability of eight prophecies, major prophecies to do with the Messiah being fulfilled one man, 33 years, and they came up with this figure. Now, that still doesn't mean a lot to me. I don't know what that looks like. Do you know what 100,000 million million looks like? No? Okay. We're coming up to our break in a minute. <coughs> break in the middle of the sermon, which will be good. And um, we're having a tea and coffee break. In case you're not used to that, we're not going to be having chocolate digestive biscuits. But I want you to think about it. chocolate digestive biscuits. Mmm. Mm. Great. Now, I want you to imagine covering the floor with chocolate digestive biscuits. What a waste. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want you to cover the floor three feet deep in chocolate digestive biscuits. Mm -hmm. We're nowhere near that figure. 
you go outside into the street, cover the street, all the road, and all the roads along the seafront, never mind the, the parade that's going on, cover the whole place, three feet, chocolate digestive biscuits, the whole of Weymouth, the whole of Dorset, why not? Whole of Hampshire, Wiltshire, go the whole hog, the whole of England, three feet deep in chocolate digestive biscuits. McBitties are rubbing their hands in glee. And that's about that number. Right, while your back is turned, I go and choose one of them. And I lick all the chocolate off it. <laughs> and, and I put the biscuit back into the pile of chocolate ones. Come back here and I say, right, you've got a helicopter, you can go anywhere in England and land your helicopter. Change your mind if you want to. Land the helicopter, put your hand into the biscuits and pull one out. What's the chance? That's the one I licked. <laughs> yeah, that's about one chance in a hundred thousand million million. I mean, is that close to zero? Maybe. And that's just eight prophecies. How many did he fulfil? It's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. Tell me that's not close to zero as a chance of being fulfilled in one man, 33 years. That's a bit of evidence, I believe, which needs careful looking at for anyone who says, well, there's no evidence that this man was who he said he was. Think on your digestive biscuits as we take a break. I'm just going to pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that um, our faith is not just some idea, but it is based on hard evidence and the truth that you are who you say you are. Thank you for each other. Help us in this break to um, be refreshed and come back again. After the break, folks, we're going to look at bread of life and then take communion together. Thank you. Sounds like a film sequence, doesn't it? Sequel, rather. The I Am Sayings 2. <laughs> Just noticed that. John, chapter 6. And uh, a few verses from a very long chapter. 71 verses. Um, we're not going to read them all. Yeah. Just in case you had heard 71 verses. What? I'm going to read from verse 27. Chapter 6 is Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, and across the other side of the lake, um, Jesus is talking to them in Capernaum. And um, verse 27, he says this, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do then to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. So they said, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it's written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. 
It's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, the one who comes to me, he, she, will never go hungry. They who believe in me will never be thirsty. Again, we don't really get that as they would have got it because they've got all this Moses background and uh, they've seen the feeding of the 5,000 or they've heard about it and um, lots of other background. I just want to pick out a few verses. Verse 27 says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I want to ask you, in the light of eternity... What are you working for? In the light of eternity, what are you working for? I don't normally quote Muhammad Ali, but he died recently, and uh, I came across this that he's supposed to have said. He liked to have things rhyming. He said, we have one life, it will soon be past. What we do for God is all that will last. I like that. We have one life, it will soon be past. What we do for God is all that will last. I can't do it like he did it. Uh, hmm. What are you working for? Um, it's a thought. It's a question for us all to look at. That verse, 35, I think is a good summary of Jesus' ministry. I am the bread of life. Come to me and you won't go hungry or be thirsty. And he has made it clear that this hungering and thirsting is about a spiritual need in all of us. Yes, he is concerned for people's physical, mental, emotional needs, but he is overarchingly interested in our spiritual needs. And I believe all of these I am sayings are about spiritual satisfaction spiritual satisfaction so the question obviously is what satisfies you I'll just throw in a negative I don't mean by this the old um, you know, come to Jesus and all will be well all of your problems will be solved uh-uh. uh, you know, if, if that's happened to you then Glory, wonderful. But um, it's not about um, a cosy emotional duvet. Put it that way. It's that you really feel lovely and comfy. That's not what he's talking about. Spiritual satisfaction is about a real life engagement with God and he's working in us and through us. And we have a real hope for the future. We talked about what hope means in Christian terms. It isn't about wishful thinking. It's about an absolute certainty. And that's a deep inner satisfaction. Let me tell you about the manna very briefly. Um, You'll know more about the manna than I do, I'm sure. I'm not going to make any puns about the manner in which I'm speaking or any of that. Um, I'm trying to be good this morning. Um, 
<laughs> the manna was what they needed. They were hungry. They were going through the desert. They were hungry. And God provided what was needed. And it was good stuff. It tasted good. They got a bit bored of it, but then, hey, it was good stuff. And the other thing is, they had to go back. It wasn't a feed you once and then everything's fine. They had to keep going back. And our satisfaction in Christ is a bit like that. We need God to feed us and give us spiritual nourishment in all of the ways that you can use that picture. It's good for us. And we have to keep going back. The picture I like, um, <laughs> you know, in the Bible it says, be filled with the Spirit. And I'm, I'm sure you know that it actually means go on being filled with the Spirit. It's a, an ongoing process. Is a sponge going into a bucket of water. You come across that, I'm sure. And you pull it out and it's full, but it leaks. Yeah, do you ever feel like that? You know, you go to God and spiritual satisfaction, but I leak. And if you put pressure on that sponge, it leaks even more. And we've got to go back to God for being refilled, if you like. We need to be in a relationship with God. A relationship is not of meeting somebody once. You know, I've met a lot of people once and I can't say I've got a relationship. I can't say they're my friends. Relationship is a regular thing. And an intimate, deep relationship is properly called communion. Communing with someone. Yeah, and that's what we're doing this morning. That's why this is called communion. As far as I'm concerned, that's why it's called communion. I don't care about the history. Um, that's what it's about. Our relationship with God. This is a focal point. This is a, a wonderful moment for us to come back to God. So, we are going to, to, to take communion in a moment. I want to remind you of one or two things before we do that about God. And um, the first thing is that God is awesome and beyond our understanding. Um, God is the one true living God who created the universe and he's greater than the universe. Right, we start there. But God is also the one who loves us. This holy, pure, almighty all of those other great words that you can use, God loves you. He loves you. With a love that someone said has no corners. There's no uh, conditions. It's not, I'll love you if you do these things. But that's where the people got it wrong. What should we do then to do the work of God? You know, what sacrifices should we make? None of that. God loves you because he loves you. There's no hidden agenda around the corner. And you say, that's not natural. And you're absolutely right, because God is supernatural. And we come to remember that and to engage with God at that level. But also, I would say, please remember that we are 
called upon to, to think of other people's spiritual needs around us. I don't just mean here, but I mean wider. Are we listening for people's spiritual needs? Are we watching for where God is at work in others? Are we ready to respond to them? Are we ready to say to people, the truth will set you free? Are we ready to show them that and to tell them? The show and tell of Christianity. Just bear those things in mind as we come to the communion table. Um, if I could have some volunteers, preferably those who've done it before, but um, uh, that would be helpful. Just six, I think. 